You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 11.45 Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they planned together to kill him. Let's pray before we begin. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, which has made so many things clear to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and your salvation and redemption in Christ. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand your word and open your word to us today. Send your spirit to be our teacher, we ask, in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The last time we were together, we began looking at this conspiracy to commit murder and not just any old murder, but the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we get a glimpse in John 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, we get a glimpse inside the council meeting of the leadership of the Jews. And I started wondering this last week, how would John know what was going on inside the council of the Jews? Who or what would have revealed that to him? Because John wasn't there, remember? Where was John? John was in Bethany celebrating with Mary and Martha and the resurrected Lazarus, and he was there with Jesus and the disciples. So how did John know what happened in the council of the Jews? Remember that not every leader of the Jews was hostile to Jesus. There were a couple that we know of who were more than just sympathetic to Jesus. Um, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, both of whom by this time had, well, Nicodemus for certain had already stood up for Jesus in John chapter 7. So I think that those are John's sources for what happened in this council meeting. Later on, afterwards, John would have found out from Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea what had been discussed during this council meeting. And remember what it was that prompted this whole discussion to begin with. It is the resurrection of Lazarus. And some of the hostile Jews, the Pharisees from Jerusalem, had been out in Bethany comforting Mary, and they had seen the resurrection of Lazarus, and they had witnessed that. Some of them believed. Some of them, God used that miracle and the resurrection of Lazarus to soften their hearts, to open their eyes to the truth, and as something that the Spirit of God would use to draw them to himself. But for others, they were not convinced. They did not believe. And instead, they turned tail and ran into Jerusalem to tell the Pharisees and the other leaders of the Jewish people what it was that Jesus had done. And now the Pharisees have a dilemma on their hands. They have a, they have a problem. <clears throat> and the problem simply stated is this. They have a man only two miles away who is claiming to be the Messiah King of the Jews, who is resurrecting people from the dead, and the proof of that miracle is walking around only two miles outside of Jerusalem. And in verse 55, it says that the Passover of the Jews was near. So the religious leaders have 
people from all over the nation who are about to descend upon Jerusalem. They are expecting a Messiah King. They are anticipating a Messiah King. They are waiting for their Messiah King. And then two miles outside of Jerusalem, you have a man who for three years has been claiming to be that Messiah King. And he's resurrecting people from the dead. And he's doing miracles and signs. And now the religious leaders realize that if they don't do something to stop this, they have a real problem on their hands. Rome did not take well to imposters or to would-be kings. And the tension between Rome and the Jews had always been there. And it was very tense at the time. And the last thing the Jews wanted was somebody with the popularity necessary to lead a revolt. Because if there is any sort of hint of an insurrection, Rome is going to come sweeping in and they're going to destroy their country and destroy their people and destroy them and put down any insurrection. And Rome had done this in the past and it was always bloody. It was always brutal. So the religious leaders know if we are going to keep the people from following after Jesus, there's only one thing we can do. Kill Jesus. Kill Jesus. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees band together in an attempt to protect their interests, which they have in common. Other than their interests, they had nothing in common. The only thing these two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, had in common was that they had nothing in common with each other, except a hatred for the darkness. I guess they had that in common. They hated Jesus, and they wanted to see him dead. And so a hatred for the light, as it always does, creates some very odd bedfellows. And so these men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who couldn't agree on anything, had a common enemy. And so the old political adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know how that works? That's how we get entangled internationally in all kinds of good stuff. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, these, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, have a common enemy, and that's Jesus. Because here's how they see it. If people believe in him, they're going to not believe in us and trust us. And we're going to lose popularity. So if people go after Jesus, and there is a revolt that they win, we lose power and influence and prestige. If there is, if they go after Jesus and there is a revolt and Rome comes in and destroys it, we lose power and influence and prestige. So no matter what the outcome of this is, if the people follow Jesus, they are going to not follow us and we are going to lose. So the only way we can protect all of this is to kill Jesus. And so they cast it as if the, the dilemma is if people follow Jesus, we're all going to die. The whole nation's going to die. Everything's, it's going to be horrible. So we have to kill Jesus. Now Caiaphas gives expression to what everybody else was thinking. As they begin to describe this, uh, if we allow him to continue like this, everybody's going to follow after him, and the Romans will come in and destroy both our place and our nation. And as they describe that, a man stands up, and his name is Caiaphas, and he gives voice to what everybody was thinking. It's something that many of them had been thinking for a long time. And we're introduced to Caiaphas in verse 49. And that's where we pick it up this morning. Verse 49. We're going to look at the plan of Caiaphas and then the providence of God. <clears throat> verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, you're probably familiar with the name Caiaphas, but you may not be familiar with the details of who Caiaphas is and what his role in this whole sordid affair is. So I want to introduce you a little bit to Caiaphas and, and who this man was, and what we see actually glimpses of what type of a man he was from here in the context. And the reason I'm introducing you to Caiaphas is because he plays a central role in everything that is about to unfold for the next ten chapters. We see Caiaphas come, to the, come onto the scene again in John chapter 18, and we'll 
We'll talk about him later when we get to that. But I want to introduce you here because Caiaphas is the one who begins to set into motion the plan to execute the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to notice what John says about him in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas. Here's the question. One of whom? One of them, one of the Pharisees or one of the council? Caiaphas was not likely a Pharisee. So by one of them, John doesn't mean one of the Pharisee. He means one of the council members. Caiaphas was the high priest. And from every indication, Caiaphas was not a Pharisee, but a Sadducee. And remember, the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. They were the ones who were political opportunists who would sell out to Rome if necessary for their own benefits. They were the ones who denied all things spiritual and supernatural. They denied an afterlife, heaven and hell, angels, spirits, and the resurrection. They denied all of that. The Pharisees held to those things, believed in those things, but the Sadducees did not. So they are the power brokers or the theological liberals of the day. Now, what would indicate that Caiaphas was a Sadducee and not a Pharisee? A couple of things. In John, first of all, in John 18, verse 13, we find out that Caiaphas's father-in-law was a man named Annas. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Annas was, in fact, a Sadducee and not a Pharisee. So in all likelihood, Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas, was a Sadducee and not a Pharisee. A second thing is that the, the Sadducees were the ones who were mostly the ruling class of the Jews. If you were a high priest or on the council and you were a priest on the council, if you weren't a Pharisee, you were a Sadducee. Most of the high priestly class, the elitists, were Sadducees and not Pharisees. Now, your average priest out swashing through the blood and the guts and everything in the temple and doing the sacrifices and the work of the temple, they weren't Sadducees. But the elitist priests who ruled in the council, they were Sadducees. We know that from history. Third, you can see the disdain and contempt that Caiaphas has in verse 49 when he says to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient for one man to die for the nation. You hear that contempt that he has? And who is he addressing? He's addressing the Pharisees. And that type of rudeness is something that would only surprise us if we are ignorant of what the Pharisees were like. Josephus says that the Pharisees were harsh and brutal in their language to one another, and that was just to other Sadducees. Sorry, the Sadducees were harsh and brutal in their language to one another, and that was just to other Sadducees, not not mentioning Pharisees. So here he has this disdain and contempt for his audience, which was Pharisees. Likely, Caiaphas was a Sadducee. And the fourth thing, and I think this is important to remember, the office of high priest was appointed by the Roman, by Romans, by Rome. Rome did not appoint passionately patriotic, nationalistic, zealous Jews to the office of high priest. Instead, Rome appointed men who were willing to sell out the nation for their own benefit. That was the Sadducees. So Caiaphas, in all likelihood, was a Sadducee and not a Pharisee. He was a theological liberal. And he was the theological, ruling theological liberal in the council of the Jews. Most high priests were appointed for life. That was biblically, that's what it was supposed to be. That's how it was supposed to be. And that was how the Jews functioned for many years. Let me give you a little bit of historical information that will kind of put into perspective what the office of high priest was like in Caiaphas' day, in Jesus' day. From the time of Aaron to the time of Solomon, which covers 612 years, from the institution of the priesthood, all the way up until the end of the United Kingdom in Solomon, 612 years, there were 13 different high priests. So that's one about every 50 years. From the time of Solomon till the Babylonian captivity, which covered 460 years, there was 18 high priests. That's one about every 25 years. 
from the Babylonian captivity up into Antiochus, the Maccabean revolt, which covered about 414 years, there was 15 high priests, about one every 25 years. From the time of Herod, through the life of Jesus and the apostles, till the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, a 100-year period of time, there were 28 different high priests. When Rome started to rule, they put a revolving door on the office of the high priest because people came in and out of there like it was a Starbucks. And they appointed whoever they wanted for whatever period of time that they wanted. And that averages one about every four years. Now, considering that kind of turnover, Caiaphas did pretty good for himself because Caiaphas was appointed in 18 AD and he wasn't replaced until 36 AD. So for 18 years, he was the high priest. And that's a pretty good tenure as a high priest, considering what it was like in that time. That speaks to Caiaphas's political cunning and his his conniving and his ability to placate and to satisfy the Romans. Because if the high priest didn't do ultimately what Rome wanted, Rome would simply replace them. So Caiaphas is this theologically liberal, cunning, duplicitous, political pawn, a sellout, if you will, to the Romans. And he held that office for 18 years. Now, there's another individual. I introduced you to him just a second ago. His name is Annas. <clears throat> Annas is Caiaphas's father-in-law. Now, sometimes in Scripture, Acts chapter 4, for instance, Annas is called the high priest. And here in John chapter 11, Caiaphas is called the high priest. Now, why is it, as you read through the New Testament, that you will sometimes see Annas referred to as the high priest and sometimes Caiaphas referred to as the high priest? Were there two different high priests or were the gospel writers simply ignorant of who was high priest when? It's certainly not because the gospel writers were ignorant of who was high priest when. But here's what you had going on. Behind Caiaphas was his father-in-law, Annas. Annas had served as high priest, and he was replaced in 15 AD. And then three years later, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was appointed as high priest. Annas was the political powerhouse behind the office of high priest. And you can kind of see how politically influential Annas was when you consider that Annas in his lifetime had five of his sons appointed as high priests. So who do you think was really running the office of high priest? Who was it? It wasn't Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas was the man, but Annas was the man behind the man. Caiaphas was the one who pulled the strings. Caiaphas, for all intents and purposes, had the real power and the real influence, and he was the one who was sort of pulling the strings behind the office. That is indicated by the fact that in John 18, verse 12, after Jesus was arrested, guess who his first trial was before? It wasn't before Caiaphas. Who was it before? It was before Annas. They brought him to Annas because he was Caiaphas' father-in-law. And Annas tried Jesus, then he sent him to Caiaphas. So the real man behind the scenes is Annas. And Caiaphas is just doing whatever is in the best interest of his family and whatever is in the best interest of his father-in-law. Now look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to him, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people. I want you to notice something about a statement. First of all, do you notice how rude it is? You know nothing at all. Now, that strikes you as kind of boorish and rude, as brash. It's because it is. It is intended to sound just like that. You're ignorant. You're stupid. You don't know anything. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees. You don't know anything at all. Neither do you take into account. The word means to reckon or to figure out something. Not only do you not know anything, you're not even figuring this out right. So he is putting them down. And he is a very rude man. Caiaphas is a very rude man. He's a Sadducee. And I got to be honest with you, the most rude and condescending and arrogant people 
I think that you will ever meet are theological liberals. They're not the high-minded, conservative, Calvinists, straight cutters. Those are not the arrogant people. You know who the arrogant people are? They're the theological liberals, and I'll tell you why. Because a theological liberal views himself as over Scripture, and I'm able to determine what is true and what is not, and what is inerrant and what is not, and what is God's Word and where God has spoken and where the errors are at. And you people who believe everything, all of you folks who just believe what is written in Scripture, it's because you haven't been educated to the level that us theological liberals have been educated to. And one of these days, you are going to lay aside all of your Neanderthal beliefs and all of Scripture and its inerrancy, and you're going to come to understand and view Scripture like the rest of us do. The rest of us who have been educated beyond all of the simplistic, old-fashioned views that the rest of you hold. That is the essence of theological liberalism. And it is arrogance, and it is condescending, and that is the type of man that Caiaphas was. Now, I know that it is nearly impossible for you to imagine what it would be like to be ruled by a man who is so arrogant and so condescending as to think that everybody underneath of him who disagrees with him or any of his policies is simply not educated enough to appreciate what comes down from on high. It is difficult for us to imagine that. It is difficult for us to to bridge the gap between what it was like to live under Caiaphas and our day. But I just want you to try and imagine what a situation like that would be like. All right? So he is arrogant. He is condescending. He is boorish. He is abrasive. He is a theological liberal. He is a sellout and a political pawn. Who's doing the bidding of his father-in-law? That's Caiaphas. Now notice what he says. You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. This is Caiaphas' plan. I want you to notice that what rules in Caiaphas' mind is this question, this issue, what is expedient? Now Caiaphas, I think, in all of his cunning and his intrigue, is a masterful presenter of an argument. The very first thing that he does, he is shrewd enough to present only two alternatives. Only two alternatives. Either the whole nation perish, or we kill Jesus. Those are our two alternatives. And he presents only two. This is called a false dichotomy. And you listen to this. Either the whole nation perish, or we kill Jesus. Really? That's all we can come up with? Those two options? No no better plan? We can't sit together and pool our minds and pool our intellects and come up with a better plan than that, just two alternatives? This is the false dichotomy. It really didn't have to be either one of these. But Caiaphas only presents these two so as to present his plan, which is based upon expedience, as a great idea. And when he says it is expedient, that means simply beneficial or advantageous. He's just simply asking, what is the best thing for me? Sorry, what is the best thing for everybody involved? It is the murder of Jesus. And so he presents only two alternatives. People in power do this all the time. Either everything goes down the tubes, or here's my solution. We have only two. We, we, sometimes we are asked to choose between disaster and catastrophe in our political setting. This is why I vote Republican, because I prefer disaster to catastrophe. And so I vote for disaster because I think disaster is easier to overcome than catastrophe. This is how, this is how politicians present it. Everything is going south. Everything's going to crumble. It is the, REM was right. It's the end of the world as we know it. That's option one. The other option, my solution. And you look at them and you say, really? Can we not come to the table and come up with some other solution than that? That's the false dichotomy. That's what Caiaphas is doing. If you don't want my solution, you must want the whole nation to perish. Wait a second. Just because I don't want your solution doesn't mean I want catastrophe. Just because I don't opt for disaster, I have catastrophe. 
That's the false dichotomy. That's brilliant. It's a brilliant political strategy. Now, I know that it is difficult for you to imagine living in a situation where the leaders present to you only two options, and both of them are disasters and catastrophes. I know it's difficult to imagine, but just try and put yourself into that situation. Sometimes drawing the connection between what we see in Scripture and modern day is difficult. Today is one of those examples. A lot of difficulties here in seeing how it would be like to live under Caiaphas. So he presents, he's shrewd enough to present all of this as if there are only two options. That's a false dichotomy. Second, he asks only what is expedient. He doesn't ask what is just, what is right, what would God have us to do, what is the lawful thing to do. He simply asks what's most advantageous, what is most beneficial, what is the best thing from my vantage point, that's the the issue, what is the best thing from my vantage point that we do in this situation. Now he is able to present his solution, which is the murder of Jesus, because he has presented a catastrophic alternative. And so it makes it look as if you only have one solution. And he's simply asking, what is most advantageous? It's expediency, not lawfulness, not justice, not righteousness. Political leaders, I know this is going to shock you, sometimes have the tendency to do this very thing in our own day. Not that we've ever seen it, but they don't make a a decision or institute a policy or vote on something because it is lawful or right or just, but sometimes they simply ask, what is what? Most expedient. And it's always this, what is most politically expedient? I want you to try and imagine, if you can, what it would be like to live under a situation where the only question anybody asks is, what is the best thing from my vantage point to do? And they never ask what is lawful, what is righteous, or what is just. Now, it's easy for us to poke fun at folks who live 3,000 miles away in the nation's capital. But listen, Christian, every sin we commit is because we reason exactly like Caiaphas does. Do you know what sin tempts us to do? Sin tempts us to fall into it because we ask the question, what is the best thing for me? Now. Not then, not later, but now. Every sin I have ever committed and every sin that you will ever commit, you commit because sin and the devil and your flesh trick you into thinking that what matters most is what is most beneficial for me and my own happiness. What will make me happy instead of what will make me holy? What is the easiest thing for me to do? What is the most beneficial thing for me to do? What will satisfy my lusts now? What will satisfy my cravings now? What will be easiest for me now? What will my parents, what do my parents want me to do? What do my coworkers want me to do? What do my, my friends advise me to do? What do the people around me ask me to do? Instead of asking the question, what does God want me to do? What is lawful? What is right? What is just? Sin says, what is expedient? And guess what? Every time we sin, it is because we do what is expedient rather than what is right and what is just. So it's easy to poke fun at political leaders. Not only is it easy, it's actually fun. But we have to step back and say, every time I sin, I'm doing the exact same thing. Every sin I've ever committed is because I have stepped into Caiaphas' shoes and said, what will make me happy? What will benefit me? As opposed to what will make me holy and what does God want me to do? Many an affair many a divorce, many a lingering look at pornography has been justified by Caiaphas' thinking. And it is sinful, and it is wretched, and we need to get out of that. We need to ask the question, not what is expedient, but what is righteous, and what is good, and what is holy, and just, and true, and what would God want me to do? The third thing Caiaphas does is he, he cloaks his personal political ambitions 
under the guise of what is best for others. Do you notice that? What does Caiaphas really want? He wants Jesus dead. So how does he, how does he cloak that? What I'm really concerned with is all of the people out there, the nation. I don't want it to perish. I'm really concerned for the glory of God. I'm really concerned for the people. I'm really concerned for our religion and our nation. And so that's why we need to do this horrible thing. We need to kill one innocent man, however innocent and good he might be. We need to kill him to save others. No wicked ruler ever ascends to office saying, look, I wish you would vote for me because I'm really after my own ambitions. It's a good job. It's a good paying job. It's a lot of vacation. My travel is paid for. I get to sit around and have a whole staff. Everybody chants my name whenever I walk on stage. I'm really there to take and milk the public treasury and everything I can get out of it for my own policies, my own political ambition. I just want to suck society dry for myself. Please vote for me. No wicked ruler ever says that. You know what they say? You are, you got a crisis and it is looming and we are on the verge of an ecological collapse. And we are on the verge of a financial collapse. And I am doing this because I want to give back and I want to secure the future of freedom for our children and our grandchildren. That's what they do. Wicked men always cloak their ambitions in high-sounding and high-minded thinking. They always do that. They never come right out and say what they're really after. Caiaphas wants Jesus dead, and he wants this as an excuse. We did it for you. I mean, really, we did it for you. Maybe it wasn't the best idea, but we did it for you. And the irony of the whole thing is this. What Caiaphas is hoping to avert, he actually brings to pass on the nation of Israel. Because of their rejection of Jesus and their crucifixion of Jesus, Titus came in in 70 AD, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the nation, destroyed the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin has never convened again, and no sacrifice has been offered since 70 AD. Titus did the very thing that Caiaphas was trying to avoid, and Caiaphas' actions actually brought it to pass. You know who the stupid and ignorant one is? It's not the Pharisees. Who is it? It's Caiaphas. It's actually his words and his deeds which brought to pass the very thing that he says he did not want to happen. All right, that is the plan of Caiaphas. Look now at the providence of God. Verse 51 to 53. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Caiaphas's words in describing that Jesus should die for all of the nation, those words had a meaning and a level of, of intention behind them that Caiaphas could never have understood or anticipated. Caiaphas did not intend to describe the atonement. He did not intend to describe what Jesus was actually going to do. He is trying to reason from his wicked perspective and his wicked mind with his wicked motives for his own ambition. He is trying to persuade them to kill Jesus. And in doing so, he describes what they are going to do in a way that to us, looking at it from this side of the cross, we look back on it and we say, wow, no truer words have been spoken than those spoken by this wicked man. He actually was describing from our perspective what the atonement was all about. That Jesus would die for the nation and not just for the nation, but that he might gather together into one all the children of God who are scattered abroad. That was the purpose of God in this, in this death. Now here's, there's a difficulty here in what Caiaphas says in verses 51 and 52, and the difficulty is this. I'm going to describe it to you. I want you to think this through real carefully. John says in verse 51, now he did not say this on his own initiative. Now by that he doesn't mean that Caiaphas was being forced like an automaton against his will to utter words that he didn't want to utter. John is simply meaning that these words are not just out of Caiaphas' natural wicked heart. These words are providentially spoken through Caiaphas and there is a mouth behind Caiaphas' mouth that is describing this. It wasn't just Caiaphas doing this. God was saying something through Caiaphas' words. That's not the difficulty. 
Here's the difficulty. John says in verse 51 that being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die. And here's the difficulty. Caiaphas is a wicked man with wicked motives, wicked intentions, and a wicked plan. And he is trying to coerce and to convince other wicked people to do a wicked deed. In what sense is that a prophecy? How does God speak a prophetic truth through a man like Caiaphas? Do you see the difficulty there? Was Caiaphas filled with the Spirit? Did the Spirit of God come upon this wicked man when he spoke these words? Were these inspired words in the same sense that Scripture is inspired or Isaiah's prophecy is inspired? What do we do with God speaking this kind of truth through this kind of a man? There's no answer to this question that fully satisfies every consideration that I can think of in connection with this. But I'm going to give you something that I think kind of helps me wrap my mind around this. Ultimately, it is no more difficult for God to speak through Caiaphas than it is for him to speak through Isaiah. Because both Isaiah and Caiaphas were what? They were sinners. Now, Isaiah was a righteous man, righteous by his faith, righteous by by imputation from God. Isaiah was a called prophet, but Isaiah is a sinner just like Caiaphas is a sinner. So is it any more difficult for God to speak through Caiaphas than it is through Isaiah? Well, technically, no, because God can speak through Balaam. God can speak through a donkey if he wants to. So the vehicle itself is not really any any particular consideration. Really the consideration, really the way we should view it is this. God is able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Caiaphas is a crooked stick. Isaiah is a crooked stick. You're a crooked stick. I'm a crooked stick. We're all crooked sticks. Fortunately, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. So in the case of Caiaphas, Caiaphas makes a statement in his crookedness and his wickedness that God ends up drawing a very straight line with. Because now looking back on what Caiaphas says, we are able to appreciate that there is something else going on there. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody says something and you think to yourself, I could take that statement in entirely another way and it is more true than you realize. You ever been in a situation like that? That's kind of the way it is with Caiaphas. Caiaphas made the statement, yes, he's a wicked man planning a wicked thing, but God intended something through Caiaphas' statement that Caiaphas did not intend. It is much like Joseph and his brothers. The action that happened to Joseph by his brothers was intended by his brothers to rid the family of Joseph. Those same actions were intended by God to save the family through Joseph. Two different individuals willing two completely different things through the same course of events. Caiaphas says his words to plan an execution. God intends his words to describe the atonement. That is a beautiful harmony of the providence of God working through a wicked man. Ultimately, everything Caiaphas did and those who followed him did, ultimately all of that only served to work out the providential plan of God. That which was foreordained and predestined to occur, God did through wicked men. God allowed those wicked men to do that because it was his intention to do something through that that none of them ever intended to do. So I hope that kind of resolves the the issue, at least it does for me, that I just view Caiaphas as sort of a, a wicked man who says something and then looking at it, and John's doing this, from our side of the cross, John is looking at it saying, little did he know the weight that his words really carried, because that is a description of the atonement. So look what John says in his commentary, that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What was the plan and purpose of God in the death of Christ? 
It was for the nation. Rabbi John says, but it wasn't just for the nation only. Caiaphas is speaking of the Jewish nation. John is speaking of the Jewish nation and saying, Caiaphas intended to sacrifice Jesus for the benefit of Jewish people. God intended to sacrifice Jesus for the benefit of Jewish people, but not just Jewish people, but whom? Gentiles as well. And this goes back to everything we've seen in the Gospel of John since the very beginning, that the saving plan of God in redemption through Christ has a worldwide or global scope to it. It is not just narrowed down and focused on the Jews and the Jews alone. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Any national distinctions there? No. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Any national distinctions there? No. Uh, John 10, verse 16, when Jesus said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, I will gather them in also. We have seen this over and over again as Jesus describes his saving intention and the work that he would do that in view is not just the Jewish nation themselves, but in view is the Jewish nation and all nations, because it was always God's intention that this death should be made to provide salvation, not just for one group of people, but provide salvation for any and all and everyone who believe from every nation and tribe and tongue, tongue, kindred and tongue on the face of the planet. Everybody, Jesus is the sacrifice that is provided for everyone. In the sense, not that everyone's sins are paid for and atoned for and taken out of the way, but in the sense that Jesus' death is the one that provides salvation for men of every tribe and tongue and kindred and people. So it is a global scope. It's the very same language, by the way, as used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, when John says Jesus is the propitiation, that is the satisfaction. What does he say next? Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. What does John mean by that? Not just for us Jews, but God has in mind here something, the other nations as well. Jesus is the propitiation or the satisfaction for God's, for, for the, uh, for the sin of man, but that satisfaction is not just for the Jewish nation or for Jews who will believe, but for Gentiles as well. It's not just for us, Jews, but he is the satisfaction for the sins of all mankind. Now, that does not mean that the sins of every person who has ever lived has been paid for before God. If that's true, all people will be saved. That's universalism. That's not what John is saying, either there or in this passage. It is that the salvation of Christ is made available to all people freely. A national, it's national in its scope. So verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Pharisees and Sadducees planning something together. When two groups like that get in bed together and begin to plan something, you know something horrible is about to happen. And that's exactly what they're doing. They are hatching a plan now. And it's not that the death of Christ has never been on anybody's mind up until now. We saw back in chapter 5 that that's not the case. Back in chapter 5, they tried to kill Jesus. They tried to kill him in chapter 7. They tried to kill him in chapter 8. They tried to kill him in chapter 10. What's different? What's different here is that this now has become the official policy of the ruling body of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. They are on record. This is what we are planning. We need to stop twiddling our thumbs and leaving this up to opportunities and chance to seize him in the temple. We have to put into place a strategy, a plan to kill this man And we have to do it now and we have to do it quickly. So from this day forward, they began to plot how it was that they were going to kill him. And you know what they needed? They needed opportunity and they needed somebody willing to sell him out and turn him over. And that's what they find in chapter 12 and 13. They find the opportunity to do that. The Passover of the Jews is near, verse 55 says. And so from the time of the resurrection of Lazarus to the Passover, the final Passover in the life of the Lord Jesus, 
they begin plotting together how it was that they were going to kill him. Now, all that has happened and all that is happening and unfolding in John's gospel is any of this, Caiaphas, the Pharisees, Sadducees, is any of that outside of God's providence and his plan? Any of it taken by surprise? Not a bit of it. Here's the marvelous thing. Every last element of this entire plan, even though Caiaphas is driving it, every last element of it was something that was predetermined and preplanned by God. It is the intention of Caiaphas to kill Jesus. And it is the intention of the father to sacrifice his son as well. That's why in Isaiah 53 says it pleased the father to crush him. God was pleased to crush his son on our behalf. That's what the atonement is about. So it is, none of this is happening by accident. All of this is God's plan to redeem his people, to lay upon his son our sin. In Isaiah 53, it describes that substitutionary sacrifice, that vicarious atonement that Christ accomplished when God laid upon him all the sins of all people who will believe. On that cross, Christ suffered and died for our sins. Now before us today are the elements for communion. As we partake of communion together, we do so recognizing what God has done in the person of his son. That that sacrifice on the cross was not an accident. It was planned by God. It was executed by God. It was the intention of God to do it. He promised it. He predicted it. It was not plan B. It was plan A. Every last detail of it was plan A. Why? So that he could pay for the sins of his people. When the angel told Mary, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was what the son came to do, to save his people from their sins. He came to offer an atonement that pays the price for our sins. So as we observe communion, we do so as believers. If this, if you are not a believer this morning, I would encourage you to let the cup and the bread pass from before you. Do not partake of communion as an unbeliever. Because the Bible says you eat and drink judgment, damnation to yourself. It hardens your heart. It is a means of grace that is not available to you unless you are a Christian. So don't partake of communion as an unbeliever. If you are a Christian who is living in unrepentant sin, I beg of you not to partake of communion. That is an act of blasphemy to the Lord. doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. That's not what we're talking about. We all, no, nobody here is perfect. It means that I do not partake of communion while I am harboring and clinging on to a sin that I know I need to repent of and to give up. We partake of communion after we have examined our own hearts before the Lord. And we confess our sin, repent of our sin, and then we can enjoy the means of grace that God has given, where we appreciate and remember the death of his son on our behalf. So let's pray quietly for a moment, and we'll partake together. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.